0: We are in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at a section right now from verses 6 down to verse 9. And Peter is talking to us here about salvation joy, if you recall from our last study. And he basically gives us five points of contact in this passage to get a grip on or rediscover even our salvation joy. He talks about our inheritance, our trials, our honor our fellowship, and our deliverance. And we're looking at those things one by one. Last time we talked about the fact that our inheritance that waits for us contributes to our joy now and that where we look is very important and what we anticipate in this life is very important. Today I want to go to the second thing in our outline and that is our trials. And I want to focus on just verse 6. And I believe that God wants to use this verse today for many of you to make a a real significant change in your life. For some of you, it's simply going to strengthen you and enhance where you have already been and what you've already learned. For others of you, God willing, this will be a milestone verse for you that will turn the course of your life and your understanding of God and the hardships that you face as a Christian. We're going to talk about faith and testing of our faith today and next time as well. And I think that as you grow as a Christian, you begin to realize that the faith that you have in your heart is not some weed that is indigenous to the soil of your heart as a human being. But rather it is a rare plant that has been placed there by the supernatural work of God and the infinite wisdom of God. He has put faith in your heart and certainly in all of the discussions we've had recently of the depravity of man and the deadness of your soul, aside from God, you come to realize faith is a marvelous gift from God. It is put there by the supernatural hand of God. Now, because God is the one that gives you your faith, it is the Lord that must nourish it. And... Your faith, if it is not nourished, will wither and die like some blossoming flower cut from the vine and thrown into the field. God knows that your faith must be nurtured. And part of the nurturing process is testing, proving your faith. So your faith becomes, in the end, a perpetual miracle. It is begotten, sustained, and it is preserved by the power of God and it's the same kind of power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead you being dead in your trespasses in sin hath he quickened he has placed faith in your heart and he goes on to nourish and preserve and strengthen that faith and part of the way that he does it a big big part is through trials and trouble so today I want to talk about that very thing if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, and that's all we're going to deal with today. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We are tested by trouble in the Christian life. And every one of us goes through it. Job in chapter 5 verse 7 said that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. I don't know if you've ever fooled around with a hammer and an anvil or iron, but if you strike a hammer on iron, sparks will fly off, the sparks fly upward. Job is saying there that just as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. And certainly he had his share of trouble. We are all partakers of trouble in this life. He says we are born to it. All of us have our trouble. And we are tested by it. In the Christian life, God uses trouble. If you are not a Christian today, you have your trouble. And the sad news is this. It's just that. It's trouble. It's a lot of heartache and pain and confusion, emotional trauma, and that's about it. But in the Christian life, God takes the trouble that comes your way and he uses it to refine you and to bring you near to him. So as we look at this verse, the longer you stare at it, the more it becomes obvious that Peter has some wonderful things to say about trouble in this one verse. In fact, he has five wonderful things to say about trouble. First of all, the very first thing is this trouble doesn't last. And that is something we've been working on for a number of messages in First Peter. Getting that vision of heaven. Trouble doesn't last, the day will come when it will end. And it is a great thing to be able to gain that perspective in the Christian life. You cease to live for the moment, you start to live for eternity. When the worst of troubles come, you know life won't always be like this. And that immediately strengthens and encourages you. He says, though now for a little while. Do you see that in verse 6? Though now for a little while. Paul put it in other terms. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. He called this life a moment. He had such a grip on eternity. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So please understand in the midst of your trouble that trouble won't last. It will end with this life if you are a Christian. Again the sad news is if you're not a Christian I hate to say it but the Bible is very clear your trouble hasn't even barely begun yet because if you don't know Christ you will spend forever without him and you will discover what trouble is for eternity in hell. The Bible offers an alternative however in Jesus Christ and that is the love of God in Christ and forever in heaven with him. So you can make the difference now by believing on Christ and embracing him. So for the Christian, it says John Newton, who had a life full of trouble, he used to say that the road is not to be complained of for the Christian since it leads to such a heavenly home. Isaac Watts, who was so gifted with words, writing hymns and prose, put it this way, he said, There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. Our trouble is going to be banished away when we go to heaven to be with God forever. Your trouble isn't going to last in this life. Get that fixed in your mind permanently. Secondly, let me take the second thing that's here in this verse. Peter says in verse 6, If need be, you have been grieved by various trials. If need be. That says trouble serves a purpose. Trouble isn't going to last, and right now trouble serves a purpose. You might ask, well, what purpose can trouble serve in my life? Many things, let me tell you. For example, trouble humbles you. Trouble humbles you, and you may not realize this. I don't want to shock you at being an early hour of the morning. But some of you are a lot prouder than you think you are. And the problem with being very proud is that it makes you very blind to how proud you really are. The nature of pride is that it's blinding. The great thing about trouble is that it humbles you. And to be humbled is a blessed thing in the Christian life because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's one thing. Another thing trouble does in serving a purpose is it weans you from worldly things. When trouble comes your way, it drives you to your knees and it weans you off of the worldliness you may have become attached to. It helps you to look to heaven. It reveals what you really love. And as you're comforted in your trouble, it enables you to help others that are in trouble. And I'll tell you, the sweeter your fellowship with Christ becomes in the difficulties of this life, the more you are equipped and ready to offer Christ as the solution to that life that does not yet know his love. Trouble sharpens you in your ability to do that. Trouble is used by God to chasten us for our sin. Trouble is used by God, mark it, to develop enduring character. Enduring character. You know, I have noticed in this world we live in now, in the United States of America, that our world is producing people that have a lack of character on every level, on every side. Trouble in the Christian life rightly responded to serves a purpose, and that is it will develop your character. For example, look at First uh, Peter chapter 5. Just turn over to the right in your Bible to verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. Peter writes, and he says, But may the God of all grace... Here is a man talking about trouble who understands God to be the God of all grace. He is not a man who gets angry in his trials. He is a man in the difficulties of life who knows there's a purpose and that there is a God of all grace working that good purpose in his life in that trouble. That is his view of God. It's his permanent view of God. He passed from a point in time somewhere along the line where he didn't see God as a God of all grace, where he was probably one of the gripers like many of you, that when trouble hits, oh, why God? Why me? Oh, I thought you loved me, God. You don't love me, God. No, may the God of all grace. And may God impart to you that vision of Him today in a lasting way. May the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That could be summed up to say that's real Christian character. Establish, perfected, strengthened, settled. You see, the effect of trouble on your life as a Christian is to strengthen you. How many of you here have a lap dog? You know those sweet little things, you put bows and ribbons on them, you know, the little poodle type. Everyone I've ever met that was this big a poodle was named Tiffy. And as it sat on its owner's lap, for some reason its tongue comes just slightly out. It just sits there with its ribbon and... You know what I'm talking about? I don't know why those little dogs, they're like that. But you take a little lap dog, and because they just hang around people's laps all the time and wander around the house, let out occasionally, um, they're not very strong. But if you compare a lap dog with, say, a wolf out in the forest, out in the forest, a wolf has to run fast to get its meal, it has to fight for its life, and in in the end... A wolf is a very, very strong creature, and it's the trouble that makes it strong. And so it is in the Christian life. Trouble has a purpose, and God wants to use it to strengthen you. A third thing that we find here in verse 6 is that trouble brings pain. Trouble doesn't last. It will end with this life. Trouble serves a purpose. And the third thing is that trouble brings pain. Look at verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, notice you have been grieved by various trials. There is the pain, grieved. These trials and the trouble that comes our way in life bring emotional pain, brings often tremendous mental anguish and anxiety. And then there is that whole realm of physical pain. It's real. And we all face pain in this life. But I have come to realize, and I hope you are too, that pain has such a big part in changing you. Pain, I think often pain, drives home the lesson. When other things do not. If nothing else, pain makes you think. It forces you to ask questions. Pain has a real part in changing you. Take physical pain, for example, sickness. And I'm not talking about the flu that we all have lately. That's just a part of life. That is nothing. It's just a part of life. I'm talking about real sickness. When you have a serious illness or a serious physical affliction. I have found that sickness is God's messenger to call us to meet with him. So often prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the life I love. And God knows that about you, and He knows that about me. Often, sickness and affliction and bodily pain is a messenger to call us to meet with God. And further, I have found this in my own life. I love to read commentaries. You know, you hear me quote the names of these great redwood giants of the past in the Christian church. I love to read commentaries. But I have found that there is no commentary that opens the Bible so much to me as sickness and pain. I am driven to the Bible in a state of mind and heart in my pain that I don't have otherwise. And I go searching through the Bible to find God and to find answers. You know what I find there? I find God and I find answers. So I find that there is no commentary that opens the Bible more to us than sickness and sorrow and pain. Pain has its place in the Christian life. C.S. Lewis, do you know his name? You probably know him for the Chronicles of Narnia and some other things that he wrote. But C.S. Lewis was a great thinker, great Christian. And he used to say that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. And then he said this, Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I like that. Not because I like pain, but because I like that kind of insight. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is used by God to get the attention of the individual. And certainly C.S. Lewis knew his degree of pain. I don't know if you know his story, but he lived his life mostly, almost his entire life as a bachelor. And finally, the right woman comes along in his life, late in life. And they get married, and her name was Joy. And they discovered right away that she had cancer. And within a year and a half to two years, I don't think it was even a full two years, she was gone. So here's a man who waits his whole life. He's gone gray, he has all his fair share of wrinkles and all the loneliness that comes with being a bachelor. Finally, the right woman to be snatched away within a matter of months, really. He knew his fair share of pain, but out of his pain came so much in his relationship with God. Charles Spurgeon is one of my great heroes. I read him every week almost of my life. His sermons are more alive to me than almost anyone on my bookshelf. Every pastor I know that's into the Word of God reads Spurgeon... ...and every pastor I know that isn't into the Word of God... ...doesn't even know who he is. And you wonder... ...why the life, why the power... ...why this man who endures the sands of time... ...speaks to us, shouts to us from the 1800s, why? He being dead yet speaks. Spurgeon spoke of his own life in these terms. He said, I owe everything to the furnace and the hammer... I have made no progress in heavenly learning except when I have been chastened by the great schoolmaster. The best piece of furniture in my house has been the cross. My greatest enricher has been personal pain, and for that I desire to thank God. I can truly say of everything I have ever tasted in this world of God's mercy, and my path has been remarkably strewn, he said, with divine loving kindness. I feel more grateful to God for the bodily pain I have suffered and for all the trials I have endured of different sorts than I do for anything else except the gift of His dear Son. I am sure that I have derived more real benefit, permanent strength, growth in grace, and every precious thing from the furnace of affliction than I have ever derived from prosperity. Now those are the words of a man deep in God. Children, young men, and fathers, 1st John talks about. Those are the words of a father in the faith. A man who understands pain and its place in the Christian life. And do you realize, some of you may be there now, that there are those times in God's providence when you hit the most painful thing you have ever gone through. And yet, and I'll say to you if you're there today, it's probably the most needful thing. In your life right now and all wise all loving all gracious the God of grace has seen fit to apply this technique in your life now and sometimes the hardest thing to understand is the most needful at this point in your life in 1857 at the outbreak of the Sepoy rebellion in India the Hindus attempted to slaughter as many Englishmen as they possibly could And they especially went after the officers and their families. One such officer and his wife had gone to a neighboring town, not knowing that there was any danger threatening. They left their little daughter at home in the care of a native nurse, of whom the girl was very fond. When the uprising began, little Ellen was in mortal danger... In spite of her tender years, for she had white skin and she was an officer's child. But her father's countrymen did not forsake her. One of them galloped to her home and snatched her from her dark-skinned nurse, remounted his, his horse, and holding little Ellen before him, by this time the shouting frenzied people filled the street and they attempted to stop the horse and kill... Both the rider and the little child. But the man drew his sword and he fought valiantly every foot of the way, all the time holding the child firmly in his left arm. Naturally, she was exceedingly frightened by all the noise and confusion and she kicked and she struggled and she cried. Several times she almost slipped from his arms and the multiplied... This only multiplied, of course, the difficulties of the fight with her fighting in one arm and him swinging his sword with the other against his would-be killers. But at last he won through, and after a long, hard ride, he delivered his little charge to her mother. Who can picture the frantic joy of the parents to have their little ones safe with them again? Their gratitude knew absolutely no bounds. But you see, with little Ellen, it was entirely different. As far as she was concerned, all she could feel was deep resentment for her rescuer. You see, all she could think of was the fact that he had held her roughly, that he had shaken her so much during the ride, and that he had, of all things, refused to let her go back to her nurse of whom she was so fond. In her mind, all she could think was this. How could a man so rude be considered a friend and a benefactor? But you see... As they looked at her, the sad thing was that under no circumstances could they get her to kiss that man or hug that man and thank him. Now, what was beyond the understanding of that child, I think, is perfectly obvious to us. You see, as Ellen grew older, she must have often been ashamed of her childish ignorance for failing to recognize that this officer risked his life to save her, to rescue her, And that all the bumps and all the jolts and all the thrashing around during the wild ride were simply the unavoidable effects of bringing about her rescue. So that at the time, she judged the situation totally by outward appearances and actually believed that her rider, her rescuer, was a mean and hateful person. I want to ask you a very piercing question today. In the midst of your trouble, in the midst of what what may even be the hardest, most difficult struggle you have faced in life, do you have this attitude toward God? Do you look at God as mean? Do you look at God as someone who is only trying to rough your life up? Do you fail to see the God of grace behind it all? Are you mad at God, like so many I have encountered? What's the matter with you? Why aren't you in fellowship? I'm mad at God. And how long have you been this way? Six years now. Well, why are you this way? Well, this thing happened in my life when I got mad at God, and I've been mad at Him ever since. You know what I think about people like that? You poor thing. You don't understand God. You don't know the God of grace. You're so hung up on the temporal. You're so hung up on the immediate surrounding circumstances. You can't see God. And so you're mad at Him. And left in willful ignorance because the Bible page to page, cover to cover presents a God of love and grace. That if you don't know Him as a God of love and grace, it's your fault, not His. He has gone to great pains to present it all right here. It's all here. You can read it anytime you want. Again and again and again. When I meet these people mad at God, I feel sorry for them, I pray for them. If you're one of them today, I feel sorry for you. Because you don't understand Him. You have stopped short. You've shifted into neutral. You've backed off and made an ignorant, immature judgment of the all-wise, all-loving, all-gracious God who has brought the best for you. And it's time for you to move on out of that. Get out of it, move on out of it. Into an understanding of a God of love and grace Who, yes, may have allowed some rough circumstances, but it's the very thing you need to rescue you at this point in life. And he knows your heart better than you do. Don't fight him. Don't accuse him. Thank him that he loves you enough to allow the difficulty to come your way and to use it for your good if you'll quit fighting him. Trouble doesn't last. Trouble serves a purpose and trouble brings pain. There's a book that has come out, I would recommend it to you, it's written by Johnny Erickson Tada. You know who Johnny is? Johnny from her wheelchair has encouraged people all over the globe. Out of her pain has come a book on heaven. I opened up the book and looked on the inside cover and there was uh, some comments on the book from Elizabeth Elliot. You know who Elizabeth Elliot is. She wrote, she said, Johnny writes about heaven with such clarity and such a real grasp on it. The book is so filled with the hope of heaven. It's so real to her. And then she said this, Johnny has written about heaven and the joy of it, not in spite of her pain, but as a result of her pain. That is what we are talking about. God uses pain and trouble in your life the sooner you get to that point where you can embrace that and make it a settled issue and settle in with Peter and see him as a God of grace who works in this way, it'll save you endless hours and weeks out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with his people and carrying around a rotten attitude that eats you up from the inside out. And it'll bring you to that place of the overflowing cup, the intimacy with him, the warmth and the joy that Peter is driving us to. That you want and I want that is what we really want we want him and so trouble brings pain let me take you to a fourth thought trouble comes in many forms many forms in first Peter 1 6 says in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by what does it say various trials various trials James in chapter 1 verse 2 in his epistle said this shocking statement. He said, consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds." Let me read that again. Consider it pure joy. Somehow James and Peter are linked in their thinking. Don't you see it? It isn't that the trial is so enjoyable. It's what God does with it that is a joy. And the understanding brings you joy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. Trouble comes in many forms and sometimes it comes in shocking ways suddenly. And you need again to realize that it may be this shocking sudden thing that is exactly what you need to raise you out of your lethargy. I have met so many Christians in our day that are comatose. That's the only analysis I would give of them. They're comatose. Hello, anybody there? You know, they're beyond lukewarm. They're simply out of the picture, but they name the name of Christ. Many of them are real Christians. But they've become almost like they don't know God at all. What is God going to have to do in His love to rouse that individual out of their deadly lethargy? I suggest the Bible presents He will shock you out of it because He loves you. I read about a woman who, years ago, in Montana, during the winter, and it can get very cold in Montana in the winter, she was riding along in a stagecoach, and she really wasn't properly dressed for that kind of freezing cold, and she was holding her little baby in her arms. The coachman who was driving the coach became very concerned as he saw the woman begin to go unconscious. And I don't know if you know anything about freezing to death, but it's not the typical California understanding, but... Freezing to death is a very peculiar thing. You begin to get warm as you go unconscious Unconscious and the last thing as you feel warm is you're dying So you start to go unconscious and you feel slightly warm and warm and then you're dead So he looks back and he sees this woman holding her child and she's going unconscious and he knows if she goes unconscious She will die. She'll freeze to death That the only way to keep her alive was to keep her conscious So you know what he did? He stopped his coach. He took the little baby from her arms and he wrapped the baby up very warmly and put the baby in a little compartment under his seat so the baby would be safe and warm. Then he took the woman and he drug her by the arm out into the middle of the road and threw her there and left her. As she was laying there in her stupor, She heard the bouncing of the coach and the noise of the coach driving away the galloping of the horses and she began to come back to consciousness and realize she's laying in the middle of the road and her little baby is in that coach and she began to jump up and scream and cry after her baby. The coachman looked back and he saw her jumping all around the road screaming and wailing and crying and he thought to himself, ah, she's sufficiently revived, I think she'll live. So he turned around and he went back and he picked her up, put the baby back in her arms and on they went and the woman lived. I think that sometimes God needs to take measures like that with us to shock us out of our deadly lethargy. And I have been there many times. I feel free to confess it to you. And I look back now and I thank God for those times. That God loves me enough to not leave me In an unconscious, totally lukewarm state as a Christian. He loves me too much to leave me there. And so he'll bring drastic measures to pull me out. And when that happens to you, you should thank God for it. Various trials. Do you know that Peter uses this phrase, various trials? The Greek is a word that means literally many colors. He only uses that word one other time. And it's found in chapter 4, I'd like you to look there, chapter 4, verse 10. He uses that Greek word one other time, and he uses it to describe the grace of God. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it one to another as good stewards. Notice of the manifold grace of God, literally the many colored grace of God. Now here's something very interesting. He uses this word twice, one to show the many colored aspects of trouble. Different intensity, different circumstances, different effect, all the many colored aspects of trouble. And then the many colored aspects of grace. That's a wonderful thing if you put the two together. If you put the two together, what you find out is that trouble is multicolored and so is the grace of God. So that it's as if there is no color of a trial, that God doesn't have the right color of grace to match up to it. So that, in other words, there is no measure of trouble that God can't match with the same or more measure of grace. In all reality, God lavishes His grace upon us above and beyond what we could ask or think, and generally the grace does exceed the pressure of the trial. Trials come in many forms. Trials don't last. They serve a purpose. They bring pain. Let me take you to the last thought. Trouble cannot take away our joy unless we let it. God is designed to give us a joy that trouble cannot take from us. 1 Peter 1.6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. The New American Standard translates it this way, In this you greatly rejoice, even though even though you're going through all these difficulties. That is to say, these difficulties cannot steal your joy, even though you're greatly rejoicing anyway. And this is in keeping with what Jesus said in John 7, 38. He said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said, He who believes in me. What do you believe about Jesus Christ today? Do you believe him to be a God of grace? Do you believe him to be faithful? Do you believe him to be all wise and all loving so that whatever he's allowed to come your way, he will use it? He who believes in me, out of his belly will flow rivers, rivers of living water. Speaking of that joy that is there for the Christian, in spite of trouble, in spite of trials, the joy will flow Someone has well said that the steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. And amid the ashes of our pain lie the sparks of our joy ready to flame up when breathed upon by the Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. I want to close with an account in the life of Dr. Ruben A. Torrey who was one of the great Bible teachers of past generation and if you're familiar with the school Biola he is the one that founded it. He and his wife, Mrs. Torrey, went through a time of great heartache when their 12-year-old daughter was accidentally killed. The funeral was held on a very gloomy, miserable, rainy day. They stood around the grave and they watched as the body of their little girl was finally put away. As they turned away amidst her tears, Mrs. Torrey said, I am so glad that Elizabeth is with the Lord and not in that box. But even in knowing this to be true, you can imagine their hearts were broken. Dr. Torrey said that the next day as he was walking down the street, that the whole thing just caved in on him. As he thought about the loneliness of the years ahead without her presence and the heartbreak of the empty house, and all the other implications of her death. He was so burdened down with all of this that he finally just cried out to the Lord and he said, Oh God, help me, comfort me. And then he records what followed next. He said, And just then, this fountain, the Holy Spirit that I had in my heart, broke forth with such power as I think I have never experienced before. And it was the most, get this, the most joyful moment in my life that I had ever known. As God flooded my heart with comfort and joy through the Holy Spirit. He went on to say this, Oh, how wonderful is the joy of the Holy Spirit. It is an unspeakable, glorious thing to have your joy not in things about you, not even in your most dearly loved ones, But to have within you a fountain, he said, springing up, springing up, springing up, always springing up 365 days every year, springing up under all circumstances, under everlasting life. This is the God I serve. This is the God you serve if you're a Christian today. This is the God if you're not a Christian today, you need to turn to and embrace because he has the answers for your life. And he has the strength and the joy that you need. It is the joy of the Lord that is my strength. And this is a joy that trouble cannot take from me. It is my joy. It is my gift from God the Holy Spirit. And as God is using the trouble that comes my way, he is also on the inside manifesting the joy that I need to be my strength. And I can tell you as Reuben A. Torrey, I have found it to be true in my life. In the most painful moments of my life, I have cried out to God and said, Lord Jesus, you said you would not leave me comfortless. Show me your comfort and give me the joy that is my strength now. And he has never let me down. And it's the kind of a thing that when it happens, you can't even explain it. And your friends and loved ones are saying, you ought to be cracking up and falling all apart. That's the time to tell them, you know what? Look them right in the eye and say, you know what? If I didn't know Christ... I would be cracking up and falling all apart. But he is so true to his word that I know joy and I know comfort and I know peace now, even in spite of the great pain that has come to my life. And that's one of the reasons I love him so very much because he is so very, very good to me. You see, all human beings go through trouble. But trouble for Christians is a whole different issue. Because Jesus makes it so different. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that you are our great God of grace. We know that trouble comes across this earth and sweeps every human being in its path. But how we thank you that you use it to mold us, to shape us, to make us better people most importantly to drive us to you where we find that joy that comes to us as our gift from you by the Holy Spirit. Lord, for all those here listening to this message today that are in the greatest trouble, difficulty, pain, whatever in their life, may this be a a day of monumental enlightenment and change, a turning point and how they face their trouble, and how they embrace their God in the midst of it, and how they could join with James and Peter and count it all joy, pure joy, and rejoice no matter how bad because of you, because of Jesus, because of the work of your Spirit within us, ever and always seeking our highest good and greatest state of blessedness. May we all come to understand this and embrace this truth and enjoy this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.